Welcome to West Quasset Chapel's podcast. For more information, visit us online at westquassettchapel.com. Well, good morning, everybody. It's nice to see you today. Welcome those online as well. Romans chapter 14 is where I would invite you to turn to. Romans chapter 14, page 804 in the church Bibles. All right, let's hear God's word. It's a, it's a lengthy reading, um, and I will thank you for your patience in advance. Chapter 14, verse 1, Romans. Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not, and the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does. For God has accepted him. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. He who eats meat eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself alone and none of us dies to himself alone. Excuse me. (coughs) If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the one, may be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling blocks or obstacles in your brother's way. As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him it is unclean. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean. But it is wrong for a man to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats because he is eating not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself, 
But as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach so that through the endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Amen. All right, let's pray. It's a good long reading with so much good, helpful things to say. Just a line from a hymn, Lord of Eternity, Father of Mercy, look on our fainting soul, keeper of all the stars, friend of the poorest heart, touch us and make us whole. Father, may your love capture us now as you teach us by your spirit from this text, helping every one of us here to care deeply about what we are learning. And that means to care about people whom whom we're going to meet that only you know about and the people that we already know, know to the praise of your glory and for our good and so God, the good of the whole human race. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I think it's fair to say that the gospel is not just a means by which people are converted, but it's also the way Christians solve their problems and and grow. I hope you noticed that as I was reading there, there was at least seven gospel statements that served as the foundation of what Paul was saying about debatable, disputable matters. And so sometimes people could reduce the Bible to the kind of like an answers to our questions. And so if you you have a question, you want to have the right answer. And in some ways it is that. However, if you you really let the text speak, we might find that God shows us oftentimes that, that maybe we're not even asking the right questions. Now, I begin that way by by saying those things because the desired outcome here is incredibly clear. If your Bible's open, you'll see this. Uh, Chapter 14, verse 1, acceptance. Chapter 15, verse 7, acceptance. So chapter 14, verse 1, acceptance of the weak believers dealing with secondary issues that that have no weight theologically, meaning it's not essential for salvation. It's a personal opinion that differs from our own. And then acceptance of the rest of the non-believing world, that's world, excuse me, chapter 15, verse 2, each of us should please our neighbor, that means other outside people, unbelievers, for their good to build them up. Verse 3, for even Christ did not please himself. And remember, we said that word accept in verse 7 and verse uh, 1 of chapter 14. It's the Greek word posomilanto, and it means to draw in, to draw them in. In other words, to open up wider your circle of life, to open your arms and your mind, to welcome all kinds of people as part of your existence on this planet as a Christian. So here, as we'll learn, this means to actually adjust your life, make changes, sometimes even on the fly, in order to have a relationship with someone who is not like you. Acceptance. Loved ones, God is not anti-anyone. 
God is not anti anyone that he offers his son to. If he's offering his son to the world, then God is not anti-world. He's not against the world in that sense. He's just offering everything that they need. So, yeah, there are things that, that we will all need to be repent of, repent of. But he's for us, and he's for the world, because he keeps offering his son to the world. And so should we. Okay, why? Well, chapter 15, verse 7, do you see it there? In order to bring praise to God. And so that's Paul's conclusion to the desired outcome that he wants us to have. So although this is about us, it is ultimately about God. Okay? Yes, we're going to learn, but we're going to learn that this is ultimately about God in order to bring praise to God. And so you see, this is not secondary, bringing praise to God. It is primary. So a few years ago, I read the book, Preaching, Communicating Faith in the Age of Skepticism. This is a quote from page 134. It talks about expressive individualism that's out there in the world and sometimes in here in the church. And it says, currently, identity or personhood is not realized by redirecting our rerouting our individual desires for the good of our family or for the good of other people, as Paul says here. Instead, we become ourselves, we are told, only by asserting ourselves and asserting our individual desires against society. So whether it's conservative or liberal, it doesn't matter. Asserting our individual desires against society by expressing our feelings and fulfilling our dreams regardless. And what we're learning in all those verses that we read is that is not the Christian way. Because just as Jesus Christ left heaven, came to earth, and hindered the way that he would live, he adjusted his life, adjusted himself in all kinds of ways. We're talking about God here. He adjusted his life, what he knew before birth in the world, in order to bring praise to God. Again, chapter 15, verse 7. And so here we're told that we need to accept one another. We are to accept the weaker brothers. We are accept the weaker sisters and even our neighbors. And again, with that result, in order to bring praise to God. In essence, as we said last time, we are to do what love requires. And we're not left to ourselves to try to understand what love requires. Loved ones, think with me. We worship a God who so loved the world that he essentially emptied himself to save it. It's no business. God has no business emptying himself. Doesn't, doesn't need to do that. He's God, but he did it so that we could be saved. And so once again, we are not left in the dark about what love requires. All right, then to our Bibles, then uh, the two points, we're only going to get, we have three, we're only going to get through two, so that's good. Uh, number one, what, their problem. Okay, what was the problem going on? Well, in chapter 14 and 15, there was a dispute that was going on in the church at Rome. Verse 1, you see it there, pretty easy to accept those whose faith without, without passing judgment on disputable manners, uh, matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Now, now, what is going on here? Is this something about being a vegetarian? Absolutely not. The issue may seem silly to us now, but to them it was not. In fact, in a moment, as we work through this sermon, we might feel the intensity of what Paul is teaching us here. Maybe in our own life and maybe in the life of the church. This is why. 
In the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, there was a long list of foods that God gave that were forbidden to eat for the Israelites. They were called unclean foods. And the purpose of the unclean foods and the regulations of the clean and unfood uh, you find in the Old Testament, which Jesus speaks of in Mark 7 and Paul talked about in Galatians, were essentially two. Okay, one purpose for this clean, unclean, uh, clean food thing was for distinction. So in order to help Israel keep its identity as a nation, as a people of God, and to be marked out as different than all the other people in the world, they were given a distinct diet that gave them distinction. So, for example, when Israel would be overrun at times, uh, living, among, living amongst a more dominant or prominent, uh, more powerful nation, their diet was one way that they could identify themselves as different. Okay, so purpose number one was for distinction. The second reason was that it drilled into their soul a very, very important truth. That you just can't go into the presence of God without some kind of cleansing. So that your diet, clean and unclean foods, was something the Old Testament said qualified you or disqualified you as fit for entering into the worship of God, whether it be in the temple or the tabernacle. But notice verse 14. Do you see it there? Paul says, as one in the Lord Jesus Christ, no food is unclean. And that's what Jesus taught. And that's what Paul taught the Christians, that Christ alone, listen carefully, Christ alone is the one who makes us clean and makes us presentable before the Father. And so we are always clean before God as a Christian. In us, not one blemish does he see. And the reason why that is true is because there's no amount of performance or obedience or sacrifice or fasting or strict regulations that we adhere to could do that for us. It cannot do that for us. The Christian, the Bible is so clear, is always acceptable and always pleasing in God's sight because of Jesus Christ. And therefore, all the clean flu food laws have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And that is why we do not need to follow them in any way at all, okay? So even if you follow them, you're not getting like an extra boost um, than the rest of us who eat meat and all that kind of stuff. However, there was a group of people in the church at Rome who, although they believed the gospel, okay, the death and resurrection of Jesus was the, was the only way, right, to God, they just could not shake the centuries of tradition. And so they felt it was still wrong for Christians to eat this um, unclean foods. And so for them, it was a kind of like extra protection. And Paul calls them weak. Weak because they hadn't been able to work out all the implications of the gospel in that particular area of their life. And so because they were not able to work out the gospel there, they were creating unnecessary rules to, you know, to help them feel spiritually good, good with God, to, to kind of make certain kind of extra security because of something that they were doing. So they haven't applied the gospel in that particular area of their life. And as the title of the sermon says, their works were getting in the way. Okay, their works were getting in the way. Therefore, again, they are weak in their understanding of the gospel. The extra good that they are trying to do, as good as it is, it doesn't matter, and it's causing a problem. 
And that's why Paul calls them weak, weak in the faith. You see that in verse 2. Because again, they believed the gospel, they believed they were accepted about what, by what Jesus had done, but they hadn't been able to flesh all that out in that particular area of their life. And so this is so important, so please listen well. They had that issue. And instead of dealing with it through a deeper understanding of the gospel, did you hear that? Instead of dealing with it by a deeper understanding of the gospel, they decided to take it in their own hands. So they create rules, unneeded, fashioned just for them, that help them feel good with God, spiritually okay. It boosts them, if you would, in their spiritual security, and it makes them feel, and listen carefully, it is only a feeling. Because I promise you, it does not come from God. It's just a personal feeling that they have that makes them feel better because they've proven themselves by not doing something and, you know, yes to one thing, no to the other, that's unnecessary. And so because they do that, they are right enough, they are tight enough, and they are good enough for God. And what they haven't done is applied it by way of the gospel, and to that area of their life. That's big, because by nature, we kind of do that. And just, just as a brief aside, you can be sure that that kind of person has an enormous amount of fear or an enormous amount of pride, one or the other, trying to relate to God, trying to earn acceptance with God, Get blessed by God. Get close to God by their works. And again, the works that they're doing, it just gets in the way. So I love prayer books. And I have a new prayer book that I got. It's entitled, it's a Puritan prayer book, Piercing Heaven. And I just want you to listen to one part of the prayer. Lord Jesus, I have sinned and sinned greatly. But Lord, it is the work of our high priest to clear my debt. Listen to what he says. Now, Lord Jesus, I come to you as my high priest. Resolve this for me. Resolve this for me. I confess my own conscience accuses me. Satan accuses me. Moses accuses me. The law. But it is the work of our great high priest to remove all accusations brought against poor believers. So now, Lord, as my great high priest, take away the accusation. This is your job, is my high priest. Listen to that. You listen to that now, as opposed to this. God, I'm sorry. I'm going, I'm going to do better. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to switch a few things around. You know, I'm going to cancel Netflix and maybe even Disney Plus. And I'm, I'm going to double down on a few things. And you know what? I'm going, to, I'm going to start my day every day. I promise I am on my knees. We are not the great I am. There's a massive difference in the two prayers. That was the weakest problem. That was the week they could not work through the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's easier to work with our works. We know that. We get a quicker feeling. Oh, God, thank God I did this. I feel better now. But it gets in the way. They kept relating to God in a way which always began with themselves. They kept relating to God in a way that always began with themselves and always had to be maintained by themselves. That's the week. Now, Paul says there's another group in there, and it's so strong. There's not much to say about them today except this. They understood very clearly that it was, there was nothing wrong with eating all kinds of food. 
Everything is clean now because of Jesus. That's it. So as you're thinking about that, on the surface, it could seem like a garden variety theological dispute, right? Religion is essentially about being good. So who, you know, excuse me, who is being gooder right here, the weak or the strong? You know, you just, Betty is more mature believer than, than um, Bobby. Bobby prayer life is not as tight. Betty's life of prayer is really tight, and Betty likes to tell people that. And, and Bob, barely, you know, Bobby can't get out of bed and let her know and pray before she gets out of bed. And, and if Bobby's going to get better, then Bobby's going to have to start doing what Betty's doing. And there's all secondary issues. We know we should pray, primary, but the, the way and the times and all that. So on the surface, it could seem like a theological issue, but it's not in so many ways. It is cultural. Now, stay with me. If you compare Romans 14 with what took place in 1 Corinthians 8, same dispute, same matter, food. Okay, you can read them side by side today. In the Corinthian church, most of the food that you would buy in the open-air markets were blessed, had like invocations by pagan priests. So if you're going to buy, I don't know, a steak, you were sure that the steak you were going to buy had his that pagan priest hands laid on the steak. And if you're going to eat meat in Corinth, pretty much every place was pagan. Now think, think about that here. I mean, this is like, that means let's go have a meal at a bar. Okay, some of us are comfortable with that. But go have a meal at a bar on the counter, you know, like the bar counter, right? Go do that. I have thoughts about that. Can I just share three with you real quick? I've always, I haven't done it yet, but I'd like to be there eating a meal one time and, and say things like, a round of Diet Coke for everybody in the house, you know? Uh. <laughs> or how about this one, when they do the thing where they take the drink and they throw it down the thing, or the, what is it called? I don't even know. See, I need practice. Then you grab it with your hand, like the bartender throws that and you pick up the drink and you drink it. You know, I've always wanted to do that. And if you want to go deeper into my soul, I've always wanted to be up there. And then someone says, like, what are you doing here? And then I get in my Diet Coke and go, come again, you know. And they look at me and like, oh, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> there were Christians in the church in Corinth who said, you can't eat meat offered to idols, period. It's pagan. I mean, get real. You go to that place, you're going to get all dirtied up, Right? So somehow they thought that idol worship still meant something in that to them, and they were afraid. And Paul calls them weak. He calls them weak because they don't see the implications of Jesus Christ triumph over all the dead idols and all the, the, the powers of hell. But like Rome, there were people in the church in Corinth who were strong, who said, no, it's okay to do that. It's okay to eat the meat. The idols are nothing. They don't have any power. Now, if you take these two things and put them side by side, you have two racial groups. You have the Jewish Christians, and this is, this is what made up the first century church primary. Jewish Christians, and you had Greek and Roman Christians, okay, Gentile Christians. And you had Jewish Christians who were converted out of Judaism, and you had uh, Roman and Greek Christians who were converted out of paganism. Now, of the two, think about this, who are the most likely ones in Corinth to still feel like idols have some power, and therefore, you know, they haven't thought out the implications of the gospel when they go buy their meat. It's not the Jews. It's going to be the Greeks or the Romans. And the Jews in Corinth would have been the strong ones. But in Rome, it switched. 
the, the group that is still stuck, if you would, in a kind of moralism and, 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 and um, you've got to stick by the Mosaic diet if you're going to be right, or let's say if you're going to be really, really right, the weak would have been the Jews, and of course the strong would have been the, the Roman or the Greek Christians who had been converted out of paganism. Like, that's silly, unclean and unclean, that doesn't matter. Now, you've got to ask yourself, what do we learn in that? And there are at least two things. That I'm going to press them. The first thing that we learn is that there are racial and cultural differences. They are. They, they are. We cannot get away from them. They are underneath a lot of what we like to think are either moral issues or sometimes even theological or doctrinal disputes when they're actually they're just cultural disputes. I mean, think about the, the South and slavery. I mean, you know this. There were pastors preaching it's okay to have a slave. And there were others from the north. No, it's not. Think about alcohol and dancing. And, and what I mean by that is the levels of intensity of what people say about them. I have, I have a book. It's about that thick. And it's like no dancing. And it's like eight chapters of no dancing, chapter one, and tells all the things why it's bad. This is from a book called The American Nations, the history of, of the 11 rival regional cultures of North America. It's by Colin Woodward, and it's a great book. And basically says, like, we're not really one nation under God. We're about 11 different cultures under God. All kinds of good data to back it up. It's a fantastic book. But I'm just going to quote from page 277. When the pastor of a white Methodist church in Jackson, Mississippi, 1960s, tried to admit black worshipers, his own deacons formed a color guard, literally, that's what they called themselves, to turn any away at the door. Now, what were they doing? They were making skin, the color of your skin, a primary issue for acceptance. You see, so it's every little region has its thing. Every little time in those regions has its thing. I'm not trying to tell tales, and we're not bothered by it anymore, but when we first got here, someone called Nicole and I the brown people. <laughs> the brown people. Okay? Okay. All right. <laughs> There's other issues, clothes, piercings, tattoos. You see, even as I say that, some of your conscience might be like, whoa, wait a minute, tattoos and piercings? You see, there are racial differences, there are cultural differences that have a tremendous impact on how we view the world, how we view the Bible. We have to accept that. We can read life. We can't even read the Bible to a degree without some kind of cultural position. People groups have different kinds of experiences in the world. There are racial differences, cultural differences. There are. You have to be honest. I mean, a lot of times, and just bear with me, we tend to go to the Bible when there's something wrong in our life. Okay, good. A single mother of four and a married man of three, they're going to have, in a lot of ways, a whole lot different of a life. I mean, that's there. You cannot escape that. You shouldn't deny it, and you shouldn't try to treat something, you shouldn't try to treat that thing as something other than what it is. And of course, when there's differences, differences can create problems. Okay, that's the first thing. But secondly, the cultural or the racial background of one group makes that group wiser in one context. Now, stay with me. It makes them wiser in one context, and it makes them dumber in another. Okay? That was in Corinth, and that was in Rome. The group with the less understanding of the gospel in Corinth 
they would be wiser in Rome. And the group in Rome that had a less of an understanding of the gospel in Rome would go to Corinth and they would have a deeper, wiser understanding, right? So in one context, the people were blind of all the implications of the gospel, and there were strong people who could help them along the way. In another context, there were people blind to all the implications of the gospel, and the strong could help them on the way. And what does that mean? We're going to be terribly disappointed when I say this, but it means every one of us, beginning with myself, in some ways are limited to our full understanding of the glory of the gospel, to see the glory of the gospel in all its fullness. Now, again, now, and give me a break here, but if you're white and conservative, you might have, that might sound like fighting words, right? But they're not meant to be. Ask yourself the question, why do we tend to hang out with people just like us? I mean, the vast majority of us could admit that. Why do we tend to hang out with people of the same race, of the same background, the same culture? Why? Well, it's, it's a lot easier. It's a vastly easier. They understand us. They get us. I mean, we kind of gravitate to that. They support what we support. They think like we think. They kind of live within the ways that we live. And you don't have to, you know, sit around and bite your tongue when they say something because they usually don't say something foolish. But here's the thing, I, and this is what I think Paul is showing us. We, we, if we want to know Jesus in all his fullness, we're going to need a lot of different kinds of cultural people in our context. Because without a growing understanding of the gospel, well, <laughs> we can't be what we were created to be. Lots of different races. Lots of different cultural backgrounds. And it, I just want to say, I think that part of the Christian responsibility is to connect ourselves with those kinds of people. Those kinds of people, even as I say that. And secondly, it means theologically, okay, so you have like, a, let's just say this, this is easy one. You have a, you have a charismatic person who speaks in tongues and they, and they think that they get direct messages from God. Then you have a Presbyterian who thinks, okay, that's crazy. And then you have us evangelicals who thinks, well, we're superior to both of you. <laughs> what do you do? Thank you for laughing. I was a little worried about that one, but thank you for laughing. <laughs> do you just stay away from them? Paul says, no, you make space in your life for them. Because the gospel is so glorious, and this is the idea, that the more homogeneous, and what that means is the more all our backgrounds are identical, our race, our face, our taste, that means the more likelihood of a church having enormous blind spots to all the implications of the gospel. Because all our starting points are the same. Let me give you an illustration. This is not new stuff. C.S. Lewis wrote about this a long time ago in his book, The Four Loves. And he gives an example about friendship. This is the idea. And there's three friends, Jack, Charles, and Ronald. And Jack, Charles, and Ronald have gotten together twice a week for a long, long time. They talk, they learn, they discuss. It's beautiful. And then suddenly Charles dies. This is true now. Jack suddenly realizes that there was a part of Ronald that Charles brought out that will never come out again. So there was a part of Ronald that Charles would bring out in their friendship that Jack wasn't able to conjure up. Only Charles could do that. And suddenly it hit Jack. 
that you can only know Ronald. In fact, you can only know anybody properly, listen carefully, in a group. It's a whole group. It's a variety of people to know an individual. You mean like a church? Yeah, just like a church. So, so that if, if, the, the, if it's true of Ronald, if that's true of Ronald, even though, you know, Ronald's just a mere man. Well, he did write Lord of the Rings. But if it's true of Ronald, then how much less would it be able to know Jesus Christ? You know that song, Me and Jesus Got Our Own Thing Going? We don't need anybody to tell us what it's all about. It's not a good, I mean, it's a good song as far as the rhythm and everything, but it's not a good song. You, you, you need me to tell you what Jesus is all about, and I need you to tell me what Jesus is all about. If you're going to really know him. You see, when this food thing was happening in the church, Paul's advice is not, well, you know, you just, just split up. Rome, Rome's a really big town. You go way over there, and they go way over there. Eat what you want, and look at these flick, everybody's happy. <clears throat> that happens. But it seems Paul is saying, we're only going to really know Christ if we see him and understand him together. Together. So here's the great irony. Our cultural differences is a huge problem. Yes, it is. But our cultural differences is a huge part of the solution. That's it. It's a problem. We admit it, but it's, it's, it's a huge part of the solution. Paul won't let the church in Rome stop worshiping together because of cultural or secondary issues that are there. And he won't let the, 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 the strong bully the weak. And that usually happens. It could, not, excuse me, it could happen in a church. The strong, you know, whoever they, they dominate the weak and oh, you just have to deal with it weak. We're strong, you know. You know, you know me. You're going to have to deal with it. And usually, if you think about it, the strong is, is they're, they're more strong because of external moral attributes. You know, so the more you do in the church, supposedly that gives you more firepower. You know, don't you see how much I do? And, and don't you know how long I've been doing it? And the weak are like, yes, you know, we barely get here on Sundays. You would want to say, well, we thank you for doing all you do. We so appreciate it. But acceptance with God has always been through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So your works are kind of getting in the way. Therefore, the Christian Jews are not told to say to the Christian Greeks in Corinth, come on, grow up, eat meat. We're not told to say that. The Gentile Christians in Rome are not told to say to the Christian Jews, oh, come on, grow up, eat vegetables. Okay, what are they told to say? And we'll be quickly here. What are they told to say? Well, look at your Bible. It's in verse 22 of chapter 14. There's, don't say anything. Verse 22, so whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. I mean, doesn't the American in you want to fight that? What do you mean we can't say anything? Don't go in. I'm going to get my coffee, and we're going to have a long discussion about this issue. No. Whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. In other words, no parading your liberties, okay, but no imposing them either. Okay, so you say, well, what things is he talking about? Well, it's verse 1. Do you see it there? That's the whole line of his thought. Disputable, debatable matters. Dialogismos is the Greek word. It means self-based Self-reasoning dialogue, lines of thought that are only earthbound, things that pretend, uh, promote your own potential prejudice. So, so this is your mind over God's mind. Disputable matters. 
things that are not essential to the message of the cross. I mean, if you want a good definition of what are the basics, if it's essential to the cross, it's a basic. Secondary issues, they are not. So they are disputable, debatable matters. So the context was verse 2, veggies, it's deeper. Do you see verse 5? Sabbath days and special days. And a little bit deeper, verse 21, even wine. Now, each of that has to do with, people are serious about this because they're all Christians dealing with this. Verse 1, Paul labels all those things disputable matters, lines of thinking which are rooted in the self, self self-reasoning, subjective thinking. So, right away, what Paul is saying is, don't, don't let it out. Keep it in. Verse 22, we return to the basic idea of this whole section. That's what it does. In a phrase, he's locking down his whole, whole argument, opinions, secondary matters, disputable, debatable matters are, to, are not to be open for debate. They are private matters to be kept between the believer and God. And it's not that our, our, our beliefs on secondary issues are bad and we should hide them. Paul is saying, it's just that they really don't matter. So don't make so much of them. Again, it's not that they're bad and we should hide them. It's just that they don't really matter. So don't make so much of them. Again, hold back. Don't go public with disputable, debatable matters. Okay, why? Well, look, verse 3, God has accepted them. He's accepted the weak. Yes, they, sh- they should just go away with the unclean, clean stuff, but God's accepting them. Verse 10, don't judge them. Verse 15, in fact, you adjust your life for them. That's what Paul says. You are free, Christian. You are free to do that. And as you think about it, there's great liberty in the Christian life. Liberty not to do whatever we like, that's bondage. Liberty to do what God says in his word, especially Romans chapter 14 and Romans Chapter 15. So wine is fine. But, but you know, if you drink too much, you're going to destroy your body and you're going to destroy your marriage if you're married and you might become an alcoholic. Cocoa plants, they're not evil, but, but if you do the right thing to them or the wrong thing, you can turn them into cocaine and it can ruin your life. Sex is fantastic. But if you're doing it with someone else's spouse... Are you not married? Are you trying to replace it with, you know, hour-long internet sessions? It, It could kill you. Therefore, it makes great sense. Verse 22 says what it says. Whatever you think about these non essentials, keep them between yourself and God. Enjoy your freedom, okay? Enjoy your freedom. Your freedom is not doing whatever you want. Your freedom is finally being able to obey God. Romans 14 and 15 is part of what God is saying to us. Enjoy your freedom because not everyone will understand your freedom and not everyone's conscience is attuned to the same way as yours. Therefore, because of that, keep it between yourself and look at the bonus there. 22b, happy is the person who does not condemn himself by what he approves. You could also say happy is the church which keeps peeling away disputable, debatable matters and keeps the gospel at the forefront as Paul is doing here. Now, we're going to make application and we're done. This is the fun slash scary part. 
It's a Sunday morning, and it's coffee and connection, and you meet somebody new, and they're a Christian, but they're very new to the Christian faith, and they're in a financial pitch, pinch, and they say to you, man, the government takes out so much of my taxes, and the property taxes, and the taxes, and taxes, and, and now gas prices, you know, and maybe they say something like that, good for nothing, and whoever the bad person is that's making the oil or gas prices go, whatever it is, okay? They're saying that. You could answer it a few ways. You could jump on that. You could feed it. You could say, you know what? Our government is so messed up. We need to put people in office who are more conservative and are more like us. You could say that. Or you could say, the other side is, you know, I actually enjoy paying my taxes. There's a lot of good that goes with my taxes, and I'm happy to do it. Or you could just make up an excuse and leave the scene. (laughs) Or you could go, hey, I understand all that. But something that's always been a great comfort to me were the words of Jesus in Matthew's gospel. He said, don't worry about your life, what you're going to eat or drink, about your body, what you're going to wear. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothes. And he tells me that he looks at the birds of the the air and the flowers in the field, and he takes wonderful care of them. And he says, he will take care of me. So don't be afraid, little flock. It's your father's pleasure to give you the kingdom. And so, God's been doing a great job of taking care of us so far, hasn't he? And he's not going to change. Do you see the difference? Can I give you a few more? Uh, My children are really, really tough to raise. Can I ask you a question? Do you let your kids listen to secular music and let them watch secular movies? And how do you dress them? And then how do you do this? What about bathing suits? What about this? You could go, well, we have 2.5 hours of computer time and 2.3 hours of reading time, and we have 1.6 hours, and we put them in a Cairo chamber, right? I know it sounds terrible, but it's been working out. You could do that, okay? Or you could say something like, well, that's a lot, and most of that is up to you, because it is. But, you know, the Old and New Testament is so clear. It tells me in Proverbs that I have to be a student of my children. So I adjust my life by the way God made them, and he gave them to us. So I'm going to learn to raise them by being a student of them. And I'm going to teach my kids the Bible. The Ephesians 6 and Deuteronomy 6 tells me that. And I'm going to show them in conduct what it means to live in a fallen person in this broken body as a Christian. And if I'm a dad, I'm not going to exasperate them, right? That's what the Bible says. I'm not going to frustrate them too much. And everything else is up to you. Another example, when a Christian goes on social media, you, you make a post of your personal opinion or disputable, debatable matter. What typically happens? You get some pushback, sometimes from other Christians. And you should. Why? Because what you said, which you had every right to say, I'll give you that. But the Bible would say, why would you do that? What you said was secondary and disputable. And um, you see it there, blessed is the one who's not condemned by what what, um, he approves or she approves. Can I give you one more example hot off the press? This happened early this morning at 6.30. My wife told me this. I didn't even ask you. Can I use this as an illustration? (laughs) Nicole, is this a primary or secondary issue to you? It's so good. Can I, can I, I just, so my wife's friend, and, and don't you go looking up this, you people, all right, listen. She has a friend on Facebook, and she made a post, and it was, she said, I'm so tired of people blindly following ministers who preach so strongly against women only because they have issues. And then she lists a whole lot of stuff, which I am not going to repeat to you. And she's basically upset, because basically what she's saying is, you know, these guys just get off, get off our backs for a bit. Okay, so regardless of whether you think what she's saying is true or not, this is what my wife said to her. 
My husband is the same way. No, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> she said, I think that's where expository preaching teaching is best. That way you just purely hear God's word going through the books of the Bible verse by verse. Otherwise, preachers might just preach themselves, meaning they pick and choose topics to teach and preach from. Listen to the lady's reply. Nicole, I love the way you worded that. Better than me. So she had this long rant, right? And she said, that's better than me. LOL. <laughs> Preachers preach themselves. Oh, we need to go, don't we? <laughs> There's, I, I'm going to stop right there. Is that okay? Okay, we'll finish up next time. <laughs> but, but, what a great way. And now you get to see whether my wife really, really accepted me or not. <laughs> We're going to go. Oh, Father, you are so good, and it's so liberating. The gospel, liberating, not in like a free-for-all when it comes to our battle with indwelling sin. That's foolishness. We all know how terrible sin is and what it did to Jesus and what it does to us. It's about living in a way that is so accepting of others because of what Jesus has accomplished for us by his suffering and death on the cross. So we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, Father, that that the beauty of what it means to be loved by you and how we were loved by you would emanate out of our lives to other people and so that we would love others in that gospel way, in that good way, so that people once again can say about us, if, there goes those Christians. They really know how to love one another and they really know how to love others. And God, this is my personal opinion. I think the world is in desperate need of that right now. And if you would please use us to that end, as scary as it might sound to some of us, we'd be so grateful to God to be actually in the battle for the glory of our Savior and the good of the whole human race. Please take good care of everyone today. Thank you for their patience and may the blessing of the Lord Jesus Christ be on them all. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Thank you for listening this week. If you were helped or encouraged by this sermon, please share it with others. For additional information, visit us online at westquestatchapel.com. There you'll find other resources to connect you to Christ in His Church. Also, we invite you to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or our YouTube channel. We hope you join us again next week as we grow together in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.